This is The Art Life. Hello, I'm Grace Gordon, actress and activist, and I am here today to discuss expanding the canon, redefining classics for a wider audience. I am so happy to be here with a big friend of the show. Uh, I'm here with Sean Leischer, who uses he, him pronouns. Sean is a dramaturg and new play doula and just enthusiastic contributor and listener to the show, but also just to my own art life. Sean, it is so amazing to finally have you here on air. Hello. It's so great to finally be here. Yes, I'm such a big fan of you and this show and... I just love it. So I'm excited to be talking with you, Grace. Yay. Thank you for being here. Sean, as you know, we usually start these episodes and these uh, interviews just to get us grounded in today, into the present. Um, We like to ask each other, how is your art life? So Sean, how is your art life today? Today, my art life is all about getting out of my head and leading from my heart. I have been repeating that to myself what make decisions from your heart so what does that look like for you what that looks like for me today is is having the the conversation in my head that am i going to sound smart enough on this interview am i prepared enough am i ready to talk with grace and just be like yeah no i am i really appreciate that i appreciate you being so vulnerable here because i'm i listen to a ton of podcasts myself and then you know if I'm interviewed for something I'm I have the same kind of nerves and I'm yeah I just love that you that you were open about that right now I recently did an episode about going through the American Film Institute's 100 greatest American movies list and that was something I did uh, and I, that was something I did over quarantine, watching every movie on the list. And um, one of another one of our listeners, Luisa, encouraged me to make an episode about it. But this is something that you uh, were really passionate about, too. And, and we had lots of great conversations after the episode, you and I, um, about the whiteness and the maleness of the list and what it would look like if it was updated and, you know, what we would take off and add on and and basically through that conversation, I, I knew I wanted to have you on the show um, probably many times, but I wanted to start with with uh, what you do, which is like you do all of this advocacy work for new playwrights and um, and you also are someone who's, who speaks who speaks out against, theaters and schools in the Philadelphia area where you are and where I'm from uh, when they make when they make um, poor choices in what they what plays they put up and I've just seen you for years do this and I've seen you just be a champion for new writers and so I wanted to just have this conversation about classics and expanding the what that means um, so with that I wanted to start with going back to your experiences in school. Um, I have my own my own feelings about classics because of my experiences in middle and high school. And so, yeah, just to get started, like what classics do you remember reading in school? Do you remember relating to them? Do you remember liking them, disliking them? Yeah, so I mean, we, we had, um, 
so every every English class, I'm I'm thinking mostly of high school right now. So, I mean, ninth grade we lit, we read Huck Finn. Um, oh gosh, um, the the one book that I think I really connected to that I think people consider to be a classic, and actually one that I've revisited over the years is. I mean, the great, if we're looking at the, the quote-unquote classics that I actually like, I would say The Great Gatsby is still one of my favorite books. Um, but I think that's just because it's, I don't know, that, that that book was doing something different at the time. It was just really, and, and I think it's like how, I think it's the themes in that book particularly um, I connect to because it's just the idea of like looking at these things like the the opulence of the roaring 20s and the and the 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 shininess and the um and 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 just the the outer the outer facade of of everything looking fun and great and everything but like yeah behind it everything's not so great everything is it's 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 about broken people that just want everyone to know that they're just having all fun all the time. And that's, and that's a lot of the work that I still very much am interested in today. Um, so I think it makes sense that like a book like that really hit me, but it's, um, I don't know. Did you get to read that when you were in high school at all? I've never read it, believe it or not. That's uh that's one I haven't, I was never assigned. This is, and this is part of like my, my story was, you know, I, I, really struggled with just environment in school and I was a good student but I often didn't go (laughs) so that sort of inhibited me from uh, getting the best experience Um, but it was something I wrote about back when I had a book podcast I I loved reading obviously I grew up working in bookstores as my day job I still am just such an enthusiastic reader but I had a lot of trouble with the canon, with the classics assigned in school, with um, even, you know, working in bookstores, the way that certain people would move, certain customers would come in and be condescending if I hadn't read this or that, or even, you know, maybe The Great Gatsby. Like, what was I doing working in a bookstore if I hadn't read this classic? And I, I, I ended up developing, you know, quite a, quite a judgment and resentment of anything that was a classic. Because I felt like so condescended to for things I hadn't read. And I felt like so much of this is not for me, right? Um, I, I, I mostly remember reading Catcher in the Rye in ninth grade and just not remember, like not connecting to it. I remember um, not finishing it which is unusual for me. <laughs> I just really, really did not like that book. And I'm curious now to maybe revisit it as an adult, but I could not relate to it at all. And I, it was so off-putting for me, you know, to be assigned this and to be told, oh, this is, this is what kids your age should be reading and this is how you guys feel. And I just did not relate at all. And, uh, and then moving into working in a bookstore environment, making it a priority to find young people books that they would actually connect to. That was so much my focus. And then I, by choice, started reading some classics. Like To Kill a Mockingbird are now like a, The Color Purple is one of my favorite books. 
And so there are all of these American classics that I absolutely love. And it's been interesting to kind of go back and 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 see what I do connect with because I had this hang up based on school experiences and condescending bookstore customers that that made me feel like I had to like the canon. Otherwise, I was dumb or like this was the assigned, you know, good work and uh, anything else was lesser. No, and that's really interesting. And I think, um, so, I mean, I, I'm trying to remember if I was really a reader back in, I mean, I definitely like, I mean, obviously I read for, for school. Um, I mean, some of them I, I skipped over, but um, I don't remember like, yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't remember really being a reader until like after high school or even maybe after college. Cause I think I just associated reading so much with like, you have to read this for this test. And um, it just wasn't a fun thing to me. Um, and, but, but it's interesting that you bring that up that you read Catcher in the Rye in high school. Cause I actually didn't, I read that. I want to say even after college. So, um, and I mean, I don't remember, I mean, I remember Holden Caulfield, like kind of being a jerk, but I can't really <laughs> tell you like too much about, about that book but um i mean i guess like the the plays that i was introduced to in high school we were we were definitely like introduced to we had a shakespeare play that we had to read every year um i mean what was it ninth grade was romeo and juliet and i was in ninth grade i would uh, when i was in ninth grade i want to say that was 2000 so i want to say the boz lerman romeo and juliet was only two or three years old at that time Oh, amazing. Okay. Yeah. So, I mean, I remember our teacher like really trying to like connect us to Romeo and Juliet by, by like making us watch that movie. And like, I kind of remember, um, like we had to like make like some kind of like parody song to like the opening to like the opening prologue of that play. Um, so Shakespeare, the way Shakespeare was, was taught to me growing up was it was just this, this sacred text that we just read and we ponder over. And there really wasn't any, I mean, yeah, I, I mean, sometimes like we, I remember in ninth grade, like we like, uh, we, I think we acted out some parts of it or something, or, I mean, I have a memory in 10th grade of, of, of seeing some classes. Um, uh, I can't remember if my class did it, but I just remember seeing, um, doing the, 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 the scene in Julius Caesar, the, the murder scene and, and getting students out of their seats to, to dress up in toga and actually going to the going to the auditorium to to perform that scene um but i think from what my from what i remember shakespeare was still very much taught as like it is a it is a text it's not this living breathing work of art that is supposed to be performed and shakespeare wrote it to be performed he didn't write his stuff to be studied and to be uh sat around and 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 read and and so did that make Shakespeare feel inaccessible to you, you're saying? Um, or just like it, your relationship to it is better now? I mean, I feel like my relationship to, with Shakespeare is better now just because I have seen it performed uh, much more now. And I do, I mean, even even just reading the text too, like I, I remember there was like a point in my life where I remember when I was trying to read like all the plays and like the language just clicked in my head and and then I just like, like once the language clicks with you, I feel like it's much more easier to read and you can read, read them all, but also like being aware that like some people just don't, doesn't connect with people, I think. And we need to be aware of that. 
Shakespeare is not this universal, this this universal author that we all we all pretend for him to be. He he was writing for a a very specific audience, and we want to pretend that even today, five hundred years later, yes, I mean, are there universal themes in in his plays about love and betrayal and grief and and loss and and uh and growth um sure there are there are tons of of universal themes but there's just so many layers of inaccessibility between the language between the sexism between the between the the racism between the um anti-semitism um in in some of the plays and everything where i'm no you're not even allowed to question the universality you brought up a, you brought up a, a point earlier about how like you were kind of like turned off from classics of uh, because because people like kept saying like oh you haven't read this you haven't read that and it's like and i'm and i look at him like well no wonder people don't like shakespeare because they're just being taught their entire life that if you don't like shakespeare you're dumb and uncultured and fill in the blank yeah I'm, i think this is the first time i've ever heard someone say like we need to address the fact that this is not universally accessible that it was that you know he wrote for a specific audience i don't think i've ever heard someone say that i mean this is what this is part of why i wanted to have you on here because i know that that you actually do some um some advocacy work like or you know you 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 reach out to schools specifically when when you feel like they're putting up a play that is uh, the wrong choice and so like just to get started with that, like wh- how do you think how how can schools expand their curriculum to be more inclusive? You know, your your point of entry is plays. I think getting really curious about your students, and and stop putting uh, really ask your student and I, and I think it's not even just with plays, um, with with the with the novels you're reading, with the films that you show, in in class, just really really getting curious with like, what are the stories that like your students want to learn about? And what are the ones that are relevant to their lives? I mean, everybody yeah. wants to pretend that like, oh, sh- of course, Romeo and Juliet's relevant. It's about teenage love. I'm like, not really. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's so interesting. I'm, I'm, I'm so lucky that I'm friends with, uh, who was actually a guest on the show a while back, Bernard Addison, who teaches uh, at uh, who teaches theater at a school in LA and is an actor himself, but he is so intentional about uh, about working on plays with his students that they connect to, that represent their communities, like new plays. Um, and I'm like, I don't think I know any other teacher who who cares like that with their students, you know, who like who like is really taking that into account. I certainly didn't have that when I was a kid. Cause I, cause I think it's just, it's the, it's just the, the myth of the, the canon that is just perpetuated over time where it's just, it's, it's the idea that the classics are classics for a reason and we just don't question it. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, and it's so, it's so rooted in white supremacy too. And it's like, just in the same way that we don't question white supremacy. Like obviously now we are, we are really having a reckoning with it, but um, theater still seems to be very far behind especially in, in terms of theater education. Uh, I'm so excited to hear about your friend who is, who is trying to make, uh, make change, but it's still, I think, I mean, first of all, theater, theater education in general is just so lacking and it's seen as such a, it's seen as a, a frivolous uh, add-on to so many schools. Um, 
but even when it is taught, it's just like these are the only plays that we can we can talk about. Um, I mean, I was lucky that in eleventh grade, I believe it was that like the first non Shakespeare play I read, I believe, was *A Raising the Sun*. Um, uh huh, such a great which, play. Oh, and I only read that last play. year. Oh my gosh, it's such a great play, and I I really appreciate that I got to read that play so young. But it still seems like it's 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 one of those plays that is like well, this is still part of the quote-unquote approved canon. And, like, I don't think that's, like, to discredit that play. Like I said, it's still a great play, but I, I, I do hate to see what, especially white American theater, has done to that play and to the writing of Lorraine Hansberry in general, where it's like, this is the play that we bring out for Black History Month and white people get to say they did a good thing by seeing this play once a year or something like that. Um, where I recently got to read um, a de- another play by by Lorraine Hansberry called Le Blanc, um, which is um, it's very much about um, um, imperialism, imperialism and colonialism on the African continent. And there's just so much nuance in that play, and it really is it's a complicated play. Where like if you look at a play like A Raisin in the Sun, um, where like the one white character in that play, Carl Lindner, who is um, the neighborhood committee or something that like he comes over and like tries to like bribe them, bribe the younger family from not moving into their neighborhood. It's very easy to be like, Oh, well he's a racist. So he's a bad character. Good thing that we don't do that anymore. That's in the past. But like a play like Le Blanc, it's about like the missionary, I don't want to say industry, but like it's about these, these white people who have like been part of this community and they, they think like, oh, we're doing great things. and But they're still very complicit in the imperialism and the colonialism. So it's, it very much like looks at like the nuanced ways of like, how are like the well-intentioned white people um, complicit? It makes me think of just like the whole like white saviorism complex with like missions. I mean, having grown up in the evangelical church, and the idea of like, even when white people think that they're doing the the, the, the right thing by, by helping still, yeah, it's still complicit in this, in this messed up system. I wish that was the play that was taught uh, over, even, even though, like I said, I love Raising the Sun. It's a fantastic play, but like, this is the one that I think people really need to be wrestling with because I think it's the one that it's hard for us not to like, see how, how much what's happening in Lake Blanc is still happening today. Um, I feel with like something like a raisin in the sun, it's so easy for especially white people to be like, well, that was back then. That doesn't happen now. We don't discriminate in that way. We don't. Yeah. Ex- yeah. Fill in the blank. Yeah. The more nuanced, complex uh, perspective would would be really useful right now where it's less like an obvious villain and more like shit we all do <laughs> um, still. And I'm glad you brought this up because I was I, the next thing I was going to ask you is like is like what plays or books movies do you want to see retired or replaced because I know that's that is a focus of your work. Yeah, I mean, I'm okay if we don't do Shakespeare for a while. I'm really okay with that, and I love Shakespeare. Taming of the Shrew. Why are we still doing it? Right, that one we can just get the hell away from us. We can stop. <laughs> yeah, and like, and even like saying it, like, because there are some real. I mean, even Taming the Shrew, I can look at it and be like, yes, there's some really great craft in there. And then that's the thing about Shakespeare. He's he's a great writer, but like, if you have to do so much work to quote unquote create like the 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 woke version of Taming of the Shrew, just do a new play. Stop stop pretending it wasn't sexist. It was. 
It was. I, I remember reading like a like an intro like an introduction or something or like the um artistic director's note, you know, in the beginning of a program when I went to see Taming of the Shrew a long time ago and just, you know, like her doing that kind of mental uh those kind of me- like jumping through those hoops to try to make it a feminist play. And I was like, it's not. It's just not a feminist play. Don't you know, we we cannot uh, excuse it or try to make, turn it into one, we can just admit that it's not. <laughs> Who are you serving by saying it is? Exactly. Like, well, and, and who you're serving is, is the, the older, or I don't want to say it's all older, but like, but the majority white audience who, who is, who is very, who is very, um, older white audience, but also artists who are very invested in upholding Shakespeare as, the ultimate of what theater means. Right. And I just don't get it. And what about what about plays that you want to see spoken about as classics? I mean, there's so much new theater or just in general, like like you bringing up Live Long, like what, what are the things that you're like, no, this is what should be taught in schools. This is what people should be putting up in regional theater. I mean, I think of a play like Sweat by Lynn Nottage, which is about, um, it's about Reading, Pennsylvania and the impact of the recession on that city um, and it's so much about like the death of industry. There was like a time where I feel like you could just like go into a job and just clock in every day. And you knew that at the end of a couple decades working there, there was a, there was a, there was a, a, a great retirement plan coming after it. Mm-hmm. And uh, I mean, the, the recession, I think kind of like eliminated that myth for, for a long time. And you have a play like sweat, which is just about, about people trying to get by. And it's, and it's, and it's, and it's a, it's a look at what was happening in the country. Like, I mean, I would love to see that play taught more, especially in rural communities, because I mean, a lot of, a lot of this country can relate to what happened in the recession and what, um, what happened with uh, the outsourcing of, of industry. And I mean, I just, I just really want educators, especially to really see what their community and what their students are dealing with and find the work that connects to that. So, I mean, sweat comes to mind. Um, I'm I'm writing writing down all these these plays you've mentioned that I haven't yet read so that I can do that. Um, I I mean on a related note, you have a a monologue service. You have so many such a wide network of actors, Sean, and you also uh, offer this service now where actors can come to you for basically a consultation, and you will help them find monologues from new plays. Uh, to use for auditions, just to use, you know, for their own education. It's such a cool thing that you do. Um, I've, I've, I've gone to you for this service, as have a couple of my friends. And uh, I've made me curious, like, do you have conversations like this with your actor friends? Or do you have actor friends who discuss their alienation with the canon or their, you know, their feelings like they, they can't work um, if X, Y, or Z play is continuing to get put up, like, like there's not, uh, there aren't roles for them because of what the canon is. Is that a discussion you have with friends? Is that something that inspires you to like advocate for new plays even more? Yeah, I mean, I think my advocacy for new plays more just comes from there's just so many there's just so many new writers out there. I look at my I look at my friends who are playwrights who are writing, and a lot of a lot of my friends are writing for their younger selves, looking at what their what what they were missing in their theater education or, or like the stories that they really wanted to be connected with when they were, when they were teenagers. And I just want to, I just want to support them. I want to, I want to, I want to share their voice out there. And I mean, and, and we, we talk about like what, what's being produced in regional theater. It's, it's just the idea of like 
it, if it's if it was on Broadway, then that's okay. Um, I mean, especially I feel like in Philadelphia, um, which is where we're from, um, it's getting better. Um, there are there are theaters there that do focus uh, on new work that maybe hasn't been on Broadway. Um, but I think for the longest time, it was still a lot of like, what was last year's Broadway hit? So let's just bring that over and everything. Yeah, I th and I think a lot of people are feeling more comfortable saying that Shakespeare is not for them and not being afraid to to vocalize that and yeah and yeah maybe some people are going to be like well you're just you're just dumb or you don't you don't know what you're talking about but I, and I think it's also realizing just how how much like other media impacts them. Um, I'm so inspired by by the theater that that utilizes uh, the internet or like Twitter speak. I've seen you speak out uh, online. I've seen you speak out against local schools and theaters when they announce seasons with all white playwrights or like dated plays and musicals with harmful ideas. Um, can you just like tell me about what that's like, like some of your experiences doing that, uh, the, the pushback or the, have you had like, have you had good open conversations with some of these institutions? What is, what has that been like for you? A lot of it has been the pushback and it's, yeah. it's a lot of it is around the idea of, well, especially when it comes to uh, shows that have like outdated ideas um, or like, or like sex or like, um, like these old plays with like really sexist um, ideas. And I think it comes, uh, a lot of the response I get from is like, stop being so serious. It's fun. Um, it's, it's a funny show. It's just like the big picture. It's like just like the wide uh, example of when, you know, when someone says something offensive and you, and like just a friend and they're like, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Or just like um, the uh, not not. And, and I guess like we have to like ask ourselves, like, who is it fun for? Like when you're doing a show that that's like um, this play requires a woman to like be in her underwear for a lot of the scenes because that's funny. And I'm like, okay, but who is that, like, like, who is that funny for? And I guess, like, I mean, I'm not, I'm not saying, like, I mean, obviously, I, get, I don't want to come across as, like, a prude or anything, but, like, it's, like, being, being curious about it. Like, is it, like, is that the, is that the, is that, is that this character's only purpose to be objectified? And if you say it's because it's funny, then why is it funny? And who is it funny for? Yeah. Um, I feel like the same thing with the conversations we're having with uh, shows, uh, show plays and musicals where where men dress in drag. Like, oh, mm -hmm. it's because it's funny. Okay, but who is it funny for? Because this, what this perpetuates is violence against the trans community. And that, like, women aren't to be taken seriously. Yeah. Right. With with that, uh, with with the uh, with the example of yeah, that women are not to be taken seriously, and they're only there for for amusement. And they, they, yeah, they have, they, they have no other purpose than to be um, looked at and ogled at. When I look at the season selections, I really need to like ask, like, what audiences, like, who are your audiences that you're trying to bring in? It's like older white subscriber bases that are being like, they're being like pandered to. They're, it's the whole thing of like, well, our subscribers won't, wouldn't like um, X, Y, Z play because it, yeah, they, they want, they like what they like. And I'm just like. But your subscribers are your subscribers are going to be dead soon. So like, why aren't you like, why aren't you getting, why aren't you like working on building up a new audience?
I am so glad you brought this up, Sean, because my favorite actor is John Leguizamo. And he is someone who started working in Hollywood pretty young. You know, he was was really hustling it and uh, was always getting, you know, the only jobs he got was playing a drug dealer. He's a like Latin American actor and only was cast as a drug dealer. And so what he did, this, you know, he's freaking brilliant actor, writer. He, he started writing his own plays Mm -hmm. and he, because he also experienced just as an actor, that kind of conversation of like, oh, well, there aren't really roles for you in, in, in theater because we're making shows for our audience and our audience is, you know, older, rich white people. So he wrote one man shows. He wrote shows about his family and his life experience. And the audience of those were young people, were, were people of color, were people who suddenly had a freaking interest in theater because they saw their own lives reflected. It was interesting to them. And and he is the, you know, he is largely someone who uh, inspired Lin-Manuel Miranda and Hamilton for the same reason. Um, it expanded the audience because the work was there because there was interest in what was being put up and he's like my absolute favorite actor largely because of that i'm so inspired by by the the ownership he took um over his own career and and changing the theater scene um and so he's like a role model to me just in like in that he experienced that kind of pushback and so he created something new and he showed people what was possible and it's sad that, you know, theaters are still behaving that way. And that's still the message they're sending out because there's obvious examples of what happens when you show different work, um, when you invite different audiences in. And so outside of outside of my role model, do you have role models for the kind of advocacy work you do? Or like, who do you look at, whether it's, uh, whether it's dramaturgs or theaters or playwrights, who do you look at as someone who's doing it right? Yeah, I mean... I... The, one of them that came to my mind were the Kilroys. Um, the Kilroys is a group of um, playwrights. Um, it was a group that was started in response um, to basically, um, it was an, a few years ago, just this whole idea of while women are the the majority um, ticket buyers, they are so underrepresented in, in, in like who is writing the plays and who's telling the stories. It's still such a male-driven world. I look at like a group like the Kilroys, which was created, uh, they were, they were created to, um, basically like knock out this idea that women and, um, trans, uh, and, uh, gender nonconforming people were not writing like, because it was, it was, it was the whole thing of like, well, tell me where the plays are by, by women and trans artists and gender nonconforming and we'll, we'll produce them, but we just don't know where they are. So the Kilroy's was basically like, okay, we are going to ask a group of uh, a group of um, artists to to nominate plays, and and we'll we'll select the ones that get the most nominations, and we'll we'll put out this list, and basically like wrap it up in a bow and hand them to these artistic directors and say, here they are. You don't have an excuse anymore. Besides, you're just afraid, or you don't th- you you're you want you like you're you're just biased against work that's not uh, uh, by by male writers. I mean, the idea of implicit bias, but like, it's not something that we need to like be shaming people about, but it's just like, hey, get curious about it. Get curious of like why you're only producing male playwrights um, mm-hmm. and choose differently. 
And I feel like the Kilroys was they were doing they were doing. And also what I admire about the Kilroys, too, is they've always like been shifting and like being like, OK, uh, we don't have enough trans writers uh, on our list. We need to look at that or where it's or where we're we're highlighting work by mostly um, white writers. We need to look at that really just really. Um, yeah, just being open and honest to 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 expanding their even like their advocacy work and like always always trying to grow um so i admire them a lot and just like and and just the the writers and the plays that they've put on my radar um i mean a name that came to my mind is nelson diaz marcano who is the community engagement person at um atlantic theater company in new york and and just the work that he's doing to to bring the the to bring diversity to the audiences of the Atlantic Theater Company, which is a company in New York that was started by like William H. Macy, David Mamet. Those are like the very like white male playwrights and everything. And yeah, so I look at the work, but also I look at Nelson too, because I don't know, Nelson wrote this play called World Classic, which I just think is brilliant. And he wrote that play. It's it's a it's a living room, it's like a family living room play about a Puerto Rican family. And it was very much like Nelson basically said. I see August Osage County. I see all my sons, the Arthur Miller plays. Where's, where's the version for the people that look like me? So yeah. he wrote this play called world classic and it's fantastic. It's a brilliant play. Um, and it, it needs to be, yeah, it needs to be produced everywhere. It's and, and for these theaters that are just like, well, we can't produce that play because our audience wouldn't like it. I'm like, well, you produced August Osage County. You produced, you produced right. um, Arthur Miller. So you have to you have to reckon with the fact that you're saying that your audience wouldn't like it because it's about Puerto Rican people and there's and it's and yeah because it's about non-white people not because it's like a play that it's like because it's, it's like I said it's basically yeah it's basically the plays you've been doing all the time it's that that family play um, yeah I just I just also like I really admire like these playwrights um, another one that came to my mind is Kimberly Bellflower. Who wrote this play called John Proctor is the Villain, which is about um, a group of high school um, students that that reckon with the Crucible, and and how that play is is one that we we kind of like prop up as like this classic piece of theater without like actually like looking at the harmful. Um, I mean, there's there's um, the, like uh, just how we look at like John Proctor in that play as this honorable man, where I'm like, no, mm-hmm. he's actually an abusive person. Yeah. Um, and 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 looking at it that way, so I really admire playwrights that are also that that um that 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 look at classic plays or look at classic play structure and just really like twist it on their head. And those two definitely come to mind. Sean, I so appreciate that. First of all, I have a new re- reading list coming out of this uh, episode, which is what I was hoping would happen: is <laughs> that I would have new books to read, new plays to read. But I really appreciate how so how so many times in this conversation you've come back to this concept of just curiosity, of like how expanding the canon is about curiosity, about curiosity on what your students actually connect to and want to read, curiosity about how you can get a different audience in to be on your subscribers list you know curiosity about why something is a classic or who it's funny for or why uh why someone a character like john proctor is is shown as the hero of a story or this tragic figure when he was a groomer and abuser um i really appreciate just how this conversation is really about having curiosity about other people instead of just clinging to um clinging to 
you know, this uh, unflinching belief that something is a classic just because it is, you know, because, oh, that's what we all say. And, and that's what we should all believe, because that's what smart people say, you know, like, I just love how it's all coming back to curiosity. I was going to say, like, especially with a play like with a play like John Proctor, the villain, I really want to see that play produced in rep with the Crucible. And I really and I want that because I think we need to get curious about the classics, too. I don't like I mean, yes, there are part there is a part of me that says, like, let's just like, I mean, yes, let's take a break from Shakespeare, please, because we do need to highlight new writers. But I don't want Shakespeare plays to be burned. Um, I don't want Shakespeare to disappear forever. But we just need to get curious about him. And we need to like stop thinking about uh, these plays as like the epitome of plays and just be like, okay, this is a play. It's no, it's no better or worse than a play that's been written more recently or by, by a non-white playwright or, or that uses um, like, like Twitter lingo. Um, we just got to get curious about these classics. Like, I mean, I got to see um, the, the, um, the Daniel Fish revival of Oklahoma um, that was, that was produced a few, a couple years ago. And, um, I mean, Oklahoma is just like this, this American classic and yeah, what that production did was just really like, and, and it, and it came out around the same time as they did like a My Fair Lady. I didn't get to see that one, but they did a revival of My Fair Lady where they like, kind of like made it like a little bit more feminist at the end and, or, or Kiss Me Kate where, um, uh, there was like some like lyrics to songs rewritten to like make it be like, okay, it's not, it's not just, or Kiss Me Kate is like based on, um. Uh, putting up a musical version of Taming of the Shrew. Um, so it's like, it's, it's a lot of, like I've seen these things of like, let's like go to these lengths to, to make the plays like more feminist, more woke, less, less harmful. Um, but where I feel like that production of Oklahoma was just like, no, let's just put this on stage as it's written. Um, yes, there was like updated sets and there was, um, there was minimalist set, minimalist sets. And there was like, the staging was, was very like, I would say the staging was very experimental, but like the script was for the most part, like this is the script and we are just going to do it as written. And we got to sit and think and reflect on why has this story been held up to this, to this standard even today? Um, And who does it exclude? Well, and that's what we're talking about. Rather than excluding, we're talking about expanding. And that's what the theater needs to survive, you know? Like, we need to expand uh, who is in the audience. It has been so amazing to have you on the show. I am, I, as you know, we usually close out these episodes by asking each other, uh, what is the art life? So, Sean, what is the art life? The art life is everything. The art life is life. The art life is creation, it's connection, it's community. Well, you are one of my favorite people who I look to when I think of building community in the arts because you just have such a wide network and you are so passionately just enthusiastic and supportive to all of your artist friends and you are so committed to gathering them together as well. So I really appreciate that about you. And for people listening who want to find you online or or maybe check out your monologue service, Sean, how can people support your art? You can find me at, at Dramaturgy. That's D-R-A-M-A-T-U-R-G-Y by Sean, S-H-A-U-N. But I'm sure this will all be in the, the, the episode notes. So. Yes, it will be. 
but yeah, I'm I'm uh, I'm very active, uh, or I, I'm trying to be active. I need to I need to um, I need to be a little bit more active these days on it. But yeah, I just that's that's where I um, I post about. That's where you can find some information about my my um, monologue service, but also about who the playwrights and the plays that I'm I'm a big fan of. Um, and uh, I have some really good conversations on that on that page. And um, yeah, I'm excited to uh, engage with folks and just uh, hopefully introduce them to some of their new favorite writers. Um, I don't have a, I did uh, have to take down my website, but um, recently, but I will be bringing that back shortly. Um, but yeah, mostly, yeah, where you can find me these days mostly is on uh, my Instagram. Sounds good. I am excited for people to check out more and maybe get in touch with us about um, about their own experiences with classics. I mean, this is, I think, a long conversation that can be continued, whether it's, you know, people sharing their experiences of classics that that invited them in or that made them feel shut out. And, and those plays and books and films that they wish were considered American classics now. And so with that, it has been such a pleasure to have you on the show, and I hope to have you back again for for further conversation. So thank you, Sean, for being here. And I'm so jealous that you're close to Philly right now. I haven't been home in so long. So from my side of the world, (laughs) from my side of the world in California, thank you for being here. Of course. And from my side of the world here on the East Coast, thank you so much for having me. All right. Bye. Bye. This is The Art Life. You can find the show online at theartlife.show and send letters to The Art Life, Care of Grace Gordon, P.O. Box number 4292, Valley Village, California, 91617. Send email to theartlifeshow at gmail.com or find us on Twitter and Instagram at theartlifeshow. Our theme music is The Stream by Rory. Thank you for joining me.